0: Good morning, everybody. Good to be with you. Why don't you open your Bibles, if you got one, to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6 is where we find ourselves. And as we dive into Ephesians chapter 6, we've got this week and next week until we finish up uh, the book of Ephesians. And then after that, uh, we will uh, begin a brief series for the uh, basically the month of August where we will look at... Uh, psalms for the soul and it'll be an opportunity for everyone who will get to preach to basically share their favorite psalm and why it has hit their heart so we'll be in the psalms for a little bit just for the month of august and then we'll dive in back into our theme for the entire year of the idea that we can trust the bible the bible is trustworthy and it's precious to us and so we'll look at those for a few weeks and then lord willing by the end of the uh, fall we will dive into the book of esther together so That's where we're headed, but today we find ourselves in Ephesians chapter 6 verses uh, 10 through 18. It'll actually be the second sermon on these verses, not because Travis's was bad, but because we had designed to spend two weeks on this idea of spiritual warfare, the battle that wages before us. And so uh, what I would love to do is to read the verses in their entirety, verses 10 through 18 of chapter 6, and after that I'll pray and then we'll join in together. Word of God says this. Finally, be strong or be strengthened in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that this moment, that this service, that our lives, our every moment would be about you. We want no person to be elevated except Jesus Christ. We want him to get the glory. We want his godness and his humanity to shine forth. We want your glory to be what is most radiant, what is most attractive, what is most compelling to us, that you are worthy of everything. You are the one that satisfies the human heart, Father. You are the good shepherd in whom we will have no wants. You're the one that leads beside the still waters. You're the one that restores the soul. You're the one that is with us as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. You are the one who gets all praise. You are all wise and almighty. You are good. Father, please, make Yourself famous in our hearts and in our church and in our city and to the ends of the earth. Father, we want Your glory to be heralded and loved. And we know that one day, gathered around Your throne, You will be the center of attention for everyone on the planet. Everyone. Ever. And so, Father, we just ask that right now, You would move and give us strength to draw near to You today. In Jesus' name, Amen. December 7th, 1941. In America... Franklin Delano Roosevelt called it the day that will live in infamy. It was the bombing of Pearl Harbor, and the landscape for America in those days was one of division. Some wanted to dive into the war, and others, there was strong opposition. But it was on that dreadful day of December the 7th, when 18 ships were sunk, over 188 ship or planes were crushed and over 2,400 people were killed. On that day, it became clear that war needed to be a part of America's story. For on the next day, without hesitation, there was a declaration of war by Congress. You know, when you put out polls, especially in America, um, you don't get a lot of consensus. In that season, 97% of people said we should be at war unheard of. It was this understood thing that we were at war and everything needed to change. Resources were spent differently. People were giving up things that they had in order to create the machinery and the armor and the military necessities that were needed to win the war. The recruitment was up 70 percent right after Pearl Harbor because they knew that it was all hands on deck because we were at war. It was no longer a debate. It was something that was clear and everything changed. Paul is stating the same thing. The book of Ephesians clearly lays out here in Ephesians chapter 6, we are at war. And you mean, it's like, what do you mean? Like, the sun is shining, the birds are singing. What do you mean we're at war? What I mean is this. We are in a daily battle with things we cannot see. And if you think about it, you don't need to be convinced of it. But I'll try to convince you. Day after day, we battle with things that we cannot touch. Like anxiety. Grab a hold of that one. Just put your hands on anxiety. You can't do it. What about depression? Just take your hands and push depression out like that. Just do it. Right now. Come on, you can't do it, can you? I look stupid, don't I? Yes, because you can't push out the invisible. What about anger? You cannot slap anger away. All you want, but it's there. Temptation, guilt, shame, cravings, lusts, motivations, belief or doubt, wayward loves, confusion, hurt, I need compassion and it's not there. I need patience. I need kindness. I've got pride. I need humility. All of those things you cannot touch, but there is a war going on in the heart, in humanity right now. All of those things. Various forms, various shapes, various degrees, various timing. We're at war. It's a spiritual war. Paul tells us it is a war for our faith. As Pastor Travis so wonderfully did last week, I texted him and I told him it was one of the top sermons for me. Like I was ready. I was waiting on the for it to hit the inbox so I could listen to it again. It was just such a gift. It might have been where I was, but it was a top one for me. So as I said before, this is not because a previous sermon was inadequate. It is only to continue because the war is real. But as he so wonderfully said in his sermon, the thesis of Satan... The device of the devil is can you really trust God? God is not trustworthy. You can't trust Him. That's His thesis. That's His aim. Is to pull us from being all in on God. And all these things that I just mentioned they're either evidences or they're temptations pulling us, clamoring us so that we don't trust in Him. That we trust in ourselves or we trust in others. We trust in anything but the Lord fully. Paul is telling us there's a war for our faith. There's a war for love. There's a war for whose glory we will pursue. And you better believe there is an evil one out there who is tempting us to go a different direction than towards the Lord. Last week, Pastor Travis, his three points were, know our hope, know our enemies, and know our weapons. Today, the sermon title is Waging War in Hope. Because although the picture could seem gloomy, hope is on on God's agenda and it should be on ours. When we were told to know our hope, when Paul pushes that on us, we need to believe the battle has been won. For those who trust in Jesus, you are in Christ positionally, You're not of the world. You are the kings. You have a new father. He has made you a child and he is fighting for you and not against you. He is loving you with an insatiable, unquenchable love that is steadfast and sure that doesn't give up. You're on a different team. Someone new is calling the shots. Sin is no longer the boss. Jesus himself is. The battle has been won. And one day, at the end of all things, the devil will not be the winner. Jesus is the victor. And we will be standing before Him, clothed in righteousness by grace alone. We have a hope. We have a hope because God sent His only Son to walk a righteous life that we could not walk. That's our hope. He did what we couldn't do. And then His Son died for unrighteous people like you and me. Because justice demanded a sacrifice. And so he crushed his son to pay off the demands of justice. And then, three days later, he powerfully defeated death and sin and Satan when he raised Jesus from the dead. And all of that is ours. His victory, our victory. By faith alone. Because of that love, the Holy Spirit dwells within us His love is coursing through our veins and we have the power to live differently. There's hope in this battle. That's the point. But when we were told to know our enemy, we realized that our enemy is not each other. It's not our spouses. It's not our bosses. It's not our neighbors. Our enemy is the devil. He is against us. But when Pastor Travis laid out, know your weapons, that's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time today. Because we were only able to look at one of the weapons and now what we want to do is we want to look at the full arsenal of God that he has given to us. If you look at the passage, it says in verse 11, put on the whole armor of God. It's this idea that we need every aspect, every one of these things are given to us because we need them all. That's why he gives us the list. You don't just go into battle putting on a helmet, but having no weapon and no thing to cover anything. You're like... You're vulnerable where you don't have weapon or armory. And that's what he is saying. We've got to put on the whole armor of God. So, as we consider how to wage war in hope, we're going to look at three things, three main points. One, we wage war in hope by being receivers. We must receive. Two, we must be prepared. And three, we must plead. One, we must receive. Two, we must be prepared and 3 we must plead how do we wage war in hope that's how we do it so let's look at number 1 receive the first verse finally be strong in the lord when i read that in english it looks it sounds to me like i've got to kind of muster up more willpower the verse is saying be strengthened it's it's passive it's You've got to have something given to you. Another way to say it is, be a recipient. This is what is at the core of the war. We must see ourselves as, first of all, recipients. We are receiving what? Verse 10. In the Lord, in the strength of His might, we must receive from Him. I love the Marvel movies. I've tried to watch a lot of them, not all of them. But one of my favorite heroes is Captain America. Yeah, yeah okay. And he's got a lot of movies out there for Captain America. But if you've seen the first one, um, you know, when you talk about the first one that's so long ago, I'm, I'm assuming there's no spoiler alerts going on. So when you watch the first one, what you see is little scrawny Captain Rogers going through boot camp and getting pushed around, picked apart. The only thing that helps him ever win in any of the competitions is his big heart, right? But what he needed was a body to match that in order to be Captain America. So what does he do? No amount of push-ups, no amount of sit-ups could fix his scrawniness. And so what happened? He had to sit in the machine, and then things outside of his body had to be pumped in. And then when the doors open, this epic moment, the smoke blows out, and now he's like this huge, massive individual who can run faster and lift things and all kinds of things, and he's now Captain America. The idea here in the book of Ephesians is that we are recipients. We're too scrawny to win this battle. This is not ours that we can win apart from a massive infusion of the Almighty God. And so something outside of us has to be given to us now, we know if we're in Christ, the Holy Spirit is the one that's in us, and He is empowering us. But this verse right here, be strengthened. It's speaking of a posture of the heart. Lay yourself out there as one who is needy. A parallel passage in the book of Colossians, as Ephesians and Colossians mirror each other, Colossians chapter 1, verse 11 says this, Being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might the same idea. I must be strengthened. Something has to happen to me that I cannot give to myself. It is the might of God must come into me. And then one of the most famous verses in the Bible, Philippians 4.13. Can anybody say it with me? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's right. But you can see it on t-shirts where people can, will just cut it off. And they'll be like, I can do all things. And that fits our Humanism of the day, you know, humanity can solve all of life's problems and they cut out Jesus. But the verse could literally be translated, I can do all things by the one who makes me able. By the one who strengthens me. I can face all things by the one who helps me face those, who gives me strength. Because the context is, whether I have much or whether I have little, I have learned to be content. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. The point is not the I. The point is the Christ who gives strength to us. And so we must be recipients. Why is that so special to Paul? Because Paul has said regularly, one verse in Corinthians, who is sufficient for these things? That's the posture of a Christian. Who's sufficient for this battle that's waging ahead of us? Not me. It's so easy to lead out of sufficiency rather than out of dependence. And this first idea is that we must be recipients. And so on my back porch where I regularly get up and spend time with Jesus, I just began to meditate and think about what does it mean for me to be a recipient. And as you look at this passage I call it a prayer sandwich. Because how do you become a recipient? Is that you are praying. That you're in a posture of prayer. And the passage keeps going and says, now put on the armor of God. And then he says, take that praying. That's verse 18. So you pray at the beginning, you're praying at the end, you're praying throughout it. Prayer is the fuel that keeps you going in the midst of the war. But I just I sat just there because I'm like you. My brain goes in tons of different directions. I'm a receiver. Okay, so what? What does that look like? And you know what Paul does? You'll see it when he goes through the different parts of the armor. He takes physical things to teach us spiritual lessons. And so I just began to use other times in the Scriptures where he takes physical things and teaches us lessons. And I began with my mind, my brain, and I began praying. God, empower me and fill me, my mind with wisdom. God, I need to see. I need eyes that see what you want me to see. I need your perspective. I want to be a recipient. Fill me with your perspective. I need ears. I need ears to hear what you want me to hear. I want to be sensitive to your Holy Spirit. I want to follow Him and hear His still small voice. This is the way, walk in it. Father, I want to taste. I want to taste. I need to love what you love and enjoy what you enjoy. Father, I I need nerves, spiritual nerves that push away from evil, that push away when there's an attack, that there's this sense of guarding against. I need to pull away from what you want me to pull away from. I need feet. I need spiritual feet that walk into what you want me to walk into to move forward in what ways you want me to walk forward. I need hands. I need spiritual hands that embrace what you want me to embrace and push aside what needs to be pushed aside. I need hands, spiritual hands that care, that reach out and love. I need a heart. A heart that feels what you want me to feel. A heart of compassion and humility and love and joy. I am a recipient. Strengthen me for the battle. This is what we're talking about. It is just vulnerability. It is just honesty. It is just coming before the Lord. I'm a recipient. Give. Pour out. I'm needy. And all of that is with this belief that His might is enough. All we need is Him. And this is the hope we need for the battle. He would not give us this passage if there weren't hope that the battle would be won. He's given us everything that we need. And... This verb, being strengthened, is present tense. Serving as an umbrella for the rest of the passage that this is not something that you do once, but this is a day-by-day, moment-by-moment asking God to fill you up that you might put on the armor of God and walk in grace. So, with that said, we've got to be prepared for the war. We're not only recipients, but we've got to be prepared. Look at the passage. It says, put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The devil is insidious in his schemes. He is crafty. He is trying to deceive us in order to squash our faith, and he is being very creative to do that. This is not a neutral stroll in the park every single day is a battle, and we need to put on the armor of God. Why? Because it says in verse 12, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Our battle is against the devil. Therefore, verse 13, look at it with me, take up the whole armor of God. He says it again, and then he says, in order that you may be able to stand, mark that word, in the evil day, and then, having done all, stand firm. They're actually two different verbs, both having the word stand in them, but meaning something a little bit different. The first word stand is more like the idea of resist. So press up against, resist. There's something coming at you, you've got to resist it so that you might be able to stand firm when the attack comes. And so he is telling us part of this resistance is putting on each piece of this armor that we might be able to resist the devil. Peter talks this way about the devil's schemes. You might know this verse, 1 Peter chapter 5 verses 8 through 11. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Why does he use the image of a roaring lion? Because you don't play with lions. It's not what you do. I read somewhere the other day, you know, Lion King's out, and so my family, we were eating at McDonald's, and they pass out this little piece of paper, and it says, do you know that lions can be heard five miles away when they roar? i just like, good night. I don't want to be right here when it's roaring. Five miles away. They're known for their majesty, so to speak. But they're also known for their bigness and this sense of, good at attacking So, he compares them to the predatory lion who is seeking someone to devour. What does the devil want to devour? Well, the next verse helps us. Resist him. The same image that's used in Ephesians 6. Resist him standing firm in your faith. That's what he wants to eat. He wants to eat your faith. Because remember, his thesis is, his thesis is, you can't trust God. You can't trust Him. Trust, faith, don't believe Him. So that's what He wants to eat. But Peter is encouraging the saints by saying you should know that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brothers throughout the world. So after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, same theme, be a recipient of His strength. The God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, He's going to do something for you. God will. Whenever that happens, mark the will, underline it, capitalize it. He will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. We wage war in hope because he's the victor. But that war includes us being sober minded, resisting the devil. Now, we know that the Bible paints a picture of our enemy as the devil. But we also got to understand, our enemy is the devil, but the world is his playground, and the goal is that we would give in to the flesh. You might have heard these three pieces, the world, the flesh, and the devil. These are our enemies, so to speak, and we don't want to leave any of them out. We sin, that's the flesh. We give in. The world influences us and pressures us, and people attack, and there are enemies out there. But the devil is the enemy. The world is his playground and his goal is to cause us to give in to the flesh that we might walk away from God in our own strength. So, we've got to every single morning, every single day, take up the armor of God. Now, He gives us some weapons. You see these weapons. Let me just read through them real quickly. It says, "...the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness." Shoes on the feet that are the gospel of peace, a shield of faith, a helmet of salvation and the word of God that is the sword of the spirit. This this sense of armor that we need to put all of it on. And he is saying these weapons prepare us for battle. So if I tell you we're going to be a part of a nerf battle, OK, OK? Nerf, we like nerf in my house. You know, it doesn't break things usually when you shoot and it's a lot of fun. You can still, you know, aim at each other. So when I was growing up, you had, you know, small little nerf guns, something maybe like these little, these here, you know what I mean? It's like, it's, those are fancier than what I grew up with, but you know, they're, you got more colors, you know, and you know, single shot, load back in, single shot, you know, that's how you play. Nowadays, if you come prepared for a nerf battle, you might come with something like this. You know, it's like now that guy is prepared for the battle, right? Everybody would say he's ready. He's on his A game, okay? And uh, you would, if you look up like Nerf battles, like they got like full armors. You know, they got masks. You know, the whole the whole nine. They're prepared for the battle. Now, what Paul is doing here is he is saying, "Be prepared." I'm telling you how to be prepared. But also, when you see those guns, if I wasn't If you weren't told this was a Nerf battle and you saw those guns, you would say, we're about ready to fight a Nerf war, right? And so you wouldn't want to bring like a full armored tank and roll it up into the front yard. You come with a Nerf gun because you know kind of what to expect. Now, these weapons, they not only help us fight the battle, but they also give us a blueprint for the enemy's designs. The weapons not only prepare us for the battle, but they give us a blueprint of the enemy's schemes. And here's what I mean. Let's take the first piece of armor. It says, fastening on the belt of truth. The word belt is technically not in the Scriptures. It says, put truth around the waist. That's what it means. And most people think that it was basically a leather apron that they would wear that came down around the knees that had really thick pieces of leather. That went from the waist down in order to protect you from arrows that would try to come through. It was a defense mechanism and it was something that you held close and it was meant to protect you. Now, he is stating that the truth must be put on. It must be taken a hold of and it must be close to us. What is the truth here? It's both objective and subjective. What does that mean? It means it is the gospel truth. It is the fact that Jesus did come live a perfect life. He died. He rose from the dead. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. And anyone who turns from their sin and trusts in Him can find new life now and eternal life with Him forever. It's the gospel of God. It is the truth. That's why when teachers come in and pervert that truth, they're called false teachers. Here he is saying we must take the gospel and we must own it. We must understand that is our story. We must rehearse it over and over. And what that will do is it will make us trustworthy people. So it's not an either or. It's both the gospel of truth that makes us people who fight for the truth in our lives and with our mouths. Now, That's the weapon that we must put on. But it also tells us something about our enemy. The Bible is really clear of what you call our enemy. He's the father of lies. Do you see how the armor helps us understand also the scheme? The devil's approach is to lie to you. His approach is to bring in something that will pervert the truth and the purity of the gospel. his role is to lie to you and the armor that god is showing to us helps us to not only know what to put on but what to guard against similar to george washington george washington the american revolution was um, infamous for creating a spy ring and sending out a bunch of spies and then kind of knowing the enemy's attack before they attacked kind of knowing a little bit of the blueprint before the war hit. Similarly, we are not left without a witness. We are not left as if we don't know what the devil is up to. We have the scriptures that tell us, and these armor pieces kind of lay out for us how the enemy tries to attack. And the blueprint is, he wants to deceive you. He wants to distort the gospel truth When Paul talks to Timothy, he says those false teachers, they're bringing in diseased doctrine, and we need to hold on to healthy doctrine. Or in this sense, it could be true versus false. This is what the church must be about, holding on to the truth of the gospel. But the devil not only tries to pervert the gospel message, but he tempts you and I. He tempts believers to live lives of selfishness and lust and deceit and anger and fear and laziness the opposite of truth and love the devil will lie to you about what will satisfy he will intentionally deceive you to slowly lead you to trust yourself to trust anyone other than god remember he wants you to believe god can't be trusted sometimes here's how he tells how how he does it He convinces you that some of the things that you are participating in are small things. And so you can leave them unattended. Small distrust of God. Small anger. Small lies. Small fears. Small looks of lusts. And the lie is, they're not going to blossom if they're left unattended. It is a lie. Solomon tells us it's the little foxes that ruin the vineyard. The war is real. And He is subtly trying to deceive you not to live in the gospel grace that has overwhelmed your life, church. Instead, to trade God in for something secondary. And so we must put on the armor of God. We must put on the gospel truth. We must repent and believe. Now, the next piece of armor is the breastplate of righteousness. It covers the chest. Guards the heart. What does the breastplate of righteousness teach us about the aims of the devil? Well, here's what you know. Satan literally means prosecutor. He's an accuser. That's what he does. You know what he does? There are times when he tells you the truth. You have sinned and you're guilty. And then he lies about God. You can't be forgiven. You're not worthy of anything. You should stay in your condemnation. You're trash. You're discardable. You are unworthy of God's love. And so you start dwelling in condemnation. You start feeling beat up. What helps you in the middle of that kind of war? It's the breastplate of righteousness. You stand not on your own righteousness. You stand upon the righteousness of another. You stand because he stood in your place. He did what you couldn't do. And the devil yells at you, accuses you, and tells you all of the mess that you are. And you're like, he's right. But he perverts The end. You can't be forgiven. You can't be loved. And the gospel of truth, if you're putting it on you and you walk in the chest plate of righteousness, you understand you stand in His righteousness, not your own. And as you stand in His righteousness, it will lead you to live a life of righteousness. But He wants you to listen. Listen to His love louder than the accusations of the devil. And there is a beautiful passage that puts this on full display in Zechariah chapter 3. The book of Zechariah chapter 3, they were rebuilding the temple after the exile. There were two people tasked to be a part of this. One was Zerubbabel. Now that's a fun name to say. You know, if you just need a good smile, try to say Zerubbabel, okay? He was the governor of the town. He was going to be tasked to help rebuild the temple. And then... God appointed another man, the priest, Joshua. And so now what you run into in Zechariah chapter 3, Joshua the priest is told that he is going to be a part, one of the two point men for helping rebuild the temple. And I want you to look at the scene. Then he, God, showed me, Zechariah, Joshua the high priest. Standing before the angel of the Lord, this this angel of the Lord which is communicating the presence of God with Joshua, but Satan standing at his right hand to do what? Yeah, you better believe it. The schemes are not a secret. He's an accuser. And so, here's what you need to know. The Lord has fought for you. He lived righteously. And he is fighting for you. He has covered you with his righteousness because of, look at this. And the Lord said to Satan, because Joshua didn't have anything to say. The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. That is, the Lord says the temple is going to be here in Jerusalem. It's going to be there. And here's what else the Lord has said. Is not this brand plucked from the fire? Is not this the man I have chosen to help rebuild the temple? And if I have chosen him, he will be worthy. He will not be disqualified. But you can just hear the devil accusing him. No, your actions, they disqualify you. They put you beyond grace. How do I know that? Because look at verse 3. Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. He was not qualified because he was clean of soul. He was filthy. And every single person on the planet is filthy in their unrighteousness. Apart from God intervention. And this is what we see. And the angel said, God himself. His messenger speaks up and says, and the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments. Why? Because Joshua couldn't get rid of the mess himself. It had to be done for him. Remove those filthy garments from him, but oh wait, I stand in nakedness and shame. What do I do with that? He says, no, no, no. And I will clothe you with pure vestments, with righteous clothing, you could say. And Zechariah even says, and let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. He was not alone. He was clothed with the righteousness of Jesus, and he could stand, not built upon his own goodness, but on the goodness of another in his behalf. And Paul is saying, this is how you wage war. You have to remember You are guilty of sin and you are loved. You're more guilty than you ever thought you were and you are more loved than you ever dreamed you could be. Clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. He is who you could not be. Trust Him. Trust Him. It's not that you struggle. The war is, are you doing battle with the struggle? Are you doing battle with the struggle? Pastor John Piper had a quote and it just came to my mind but I can't remember the exact words so I wanted to give that to you. (laughs) It's not the behaviors. It's that you have stopped warring against them that should alarm you. The The behaviors are alarming but if you're not warring against them that's when you're not walking in the righteousness of Jesus. So, Not only should we put on the righteousness of Jesus and live in that, but we must have the readiness of the gospel of peace. And he says in this one that we must have kind of these shoes of gospel peace. There must be readiness on our feet. What is this readiness of gospel peace? Well, the image is pulled from Isaiah 40, Isaiah 52. What happens is, as this messenger was sent from town to town, when he got near to the cities. He needed to tell them a message. A message that the battle had been won. And so what he would do is he would go and when he got within earshot, he would just yell out, Peace! And when he yelled it out, you would hear coming from the city eruption of celebration because the battle had been won. Peace had been declared. This is what we are to shore up our feet with. It is the fact that Christ has overcome sin. That death has been defeated. It is the gospel and the good news that peace is possible for sinners. So what does that mean for us? What does it look like for us to arm ourselves with this gospel? It means that we are gospel proclaimers. We go in and among the lost and we go in and among one another and we remind one another to proclaim the gospel. Therefore, what are the schemes of the devil that we conceive from this piece of armor? He wants to shut your mouth. He wants you to not talk in gospel encouragement. He wants you to not talk about the peace that is possible in Christ. He wants you to shut your mouth. He doesn't want you to go into areas where the gospel is not known. He wants you to soak up in yourself. This is the scheme of the devil. We must put on the gospel of peace. We are at peace with God and therefore we must proclaim that message to others that it's possible for anyone who would repent of sin and turn to Jesus. We must put on this readiness. Readiness to give a defense for the hope that is within you. This readiness of the gospel of peace. But there's also something else about this gospel of peace. It doesn't only bring peace between you and God, but it brings peace between, among one another. That's what Ephesians 2 tells us, right? That this gospel of peace makes peace possible with each other. And therefore, what's the scheme of the devil that we must resist? The devil specializes in disunifying. It's on his agenda to rip apart unity. That's why Paul says we must be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, Ephesians 4. He tempts us to major on the minors to push our eyes off of our gospel unity, to focus in on other things where we disagree. He disunifies. He doesn't want us showing loving unity. He doesn't want us overlooking offenses. He wants us to seek revenge, to grow in bitterness, to stop encouraging, to stop praying for one another, to stop loving. It is destructive. The devil is not neutral. His minions are not passive. They are trying to destroy this beautiful picture of the gospel of peace and we must put it on. Now, I don't want you to forget, why in the world are we talking about all this? If you look at verse 14, he says, stand therefore. This is possible. We're waging war in hope that we can stand against the attack of the evil one. This is a hopeful message, although it is about a real spiritual war. But we've got to be prepared. My family and I, we just went to uh, the beach over the past couple weeks. And whenever we go to the beach for years, we always play this game out in the ocean. And someone is declared the leader, and they must state whether you are going to dive, whether you're going to jump over, or whether you're going to kind of take it on and stand. And so what we do in this, you know, this leader will say, dive, you know. And sometimes if they're really slow, then you just get pummeled. You know, you're just like, good night. You didn't tell me that. And so we're teaching all kinds of good things. You know, you got to tell them ahead of time, right? And so we are doing this whole wave thing. Now, my eight-year-old, this was kind of the first time we took him out. He was in my hand. We're out in these ocean waves. They're coming at us. And as we talked about, okay, now here's how we do it. What's dive look like when we do that? And what's jumping over it look like? You know, he can't jump very high because, you know, he's small. And so, but what's stand look like? Well, he just stands there like this right here waiting on the wave to get him, you know. And what happens, I don't know if you know, but if a wave hits you like this, you don't stand long. You know, it hits you like that, you fall back and lose it. So I'm like, no, bro, is how it's got to work. You got to cut through it like a knife. You know, you stand sideways and when the wave comes, it just hits you like this right here. You kind of lean into it a little bit, put your foot in the ground, you're gonna be great. And then yeah, he was just loving it, you know. And then there were some waves I just had to jerk him up over because it was going to <laughs> it was gonna lose that whole stand image. So he was gonna get pummeled. So what happens when you play this game, somebody else dive. And so you dive into it, and then all of a sudden. You know, you got all that salt water in your eyes and you're going like this right here. And then just enough time for this fuzzy wave to be smacking you right in the face. So, you know, the leader has to help you be prepared as well for what's coming your way. This is what Paul's doing. He's telling us both how to be prepared, where the attacks are going to come from, all so that we might stand stand with not just a sense of surviving, but thriving. This image that Paul is giving us, these are spiritual armor. This is spiritual armor that we might fight the good fight of faith. And that's why he goes to the shield of faith. That shield of faith, as Pastor Travis mentioned last time, it is a shield that you hold up. What they would do is they would take pitch and put it on the end of the arrows and they would light it with fire and then they would shoot it at you and some people who haven't prepared their shield well the fire would hit the, the shield and the shield would consume and it would catch on fire and you know eventually that gets hot and so you're not going to stand behind that and then you run away and then you're exposed to more arrows coming at you so what they would do is they would take the shield and they would douse it with water they would soak it in water so that when the fire came the shield actually quenched the fire and so what are we quenching the fire with? It's faith. We're soaking our lives with faith. Now, how does, how does faith grow? How do we get more faith? Well, 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter, he understood this spiritual battle thing. He said this, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. How? Through the knowledge of Jesus who has called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises. How does our faith build up? How do we soak our lives in faith? Answer, it's the weapon that comes to down. It's You take the sword of the Spirit, the only offensive weapon. You take it and you take those promises and you put them in your mind and in your heart. You dwell on God's Word. Those promises or where His divine power, where your faith gets strengthened, so that when He comes at you, you can say, that's a false message, you're lying to me, that way's not better, the only way you get faith to say, oh, I need to love here and not be selfish, the only way that comes is through the very great and precious promises of God. And so he says, in all circumstances, the way you prepare yourself is to arm yourself with this sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, That is what's going to douse your life with faith so that you can quench all the fiery darts of the evil one. And he says now in verse 16 or verse 17, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit. This helmet of salvation, it is helpful to realize it's on the head. It's it's on the mind. Our mind needs to be drawn back into the book of Ephesians to realize we were dead in our sins, He's made us alive, He's raised us with Christ, and we are now seated with Him. All of these things have been won for us. These are ours. And He calls that salvation by grace. We are to put that on our minds. We're to rehearse that, to memorize that, to soak in it. Many of us, we have bad songs on repeat. And they're just going. We're rehearsing our circumstances. We're rehearsing what other things have gone to us. And all we do is we just keep that in repeat. Tim Keller says this, anxiety listens to yourself. Peace preaches to yourself. Anxiety listens to yourself. Peace preaches to yourself. This is what he's saying. When you put on the helmet of salvation, you are preaching that God has done something in your life and he will never leave you. It is by grace. You're a receiver, and He is a giver. That's what He specializes in. You're not alone in the war. And so, He says, there's no greater treasure than the Word of God. You take that sword of the Spirit, which makes these words alive. I say this to my kids regularly. There's a lot of books out there, but these, these words, these are different words. These words are alive words. That's why He says the sword of the Spirit. The Spirit makes these words alive. I can't tell you how many times people have said, just the reading of the text did something here. And you're like, well, why don't you just read and shut up? Well, I get that. I understand. And I'm called to teach some too. But I do trust the Word of God. That's what he says. His Word is sufficient. His Word. Just hearing it. The Spirit takes it, makes it alive, encourages, admonishes. And we are to take that word regularly. And how do we take it as we go to the Lord's Supper? We take the word pleading. I told you this was a prayer sandwich. He says here, praying at all times in the Spirit. Praying. Do you realize... This is something that I haven't mentioned. But when the, you are commanded to do something here, it's not just you as an individual. It's you plural. It's the church as a whole. So when He's commanding us to pray, He's commanding all of us to be characterized by prayer. To take the Word of God and pray it. To take the helmet of salvation and pray it. To pray as these weapons are put on when it, look at what it says. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. That word supplication is this sense of urgency, this pleading, this begging. He says, you're, just, you're doing it all the time because you realize you're dependent. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. The people of God are characterized by being pleading people. And so... I ask you, what does it look like practically to put this on? Well, this week you're going to be anxious. You're going to be afraid. You're going to be angry. You're going to be tempted in some way. Those things happen. What do you do with it? You run to God in prayer as a receiver and you ask Him. You ask Him to fill you, to teach you, to strengthen you. And you say, why? Why am I anxious right now? You could be anxious because the future is unknown and you don't know what's coming. Here's what you do. The gospel of truth speaks to that. It tells us God is writing a story and he's already brought it to completion up to this point. He's going to continue it. His son has fulfilled all the promises. Take the gospel of truth. Take the breastplate of righteousness and know that he is going to be with you. As your righteousness on this whole journey. So you do not need to fear the accusations of the devil. You do not need to fear the future. Because our God has given us a gospel of peace, which means he's going to be with us. Peace is possible. You're not alone. Over and over, each one of these pieces of the armor can help you as you battle against your fears, your anxieties, your anger, your frustration. What about my kids? What about my wife? I'm not going to be able to afford this. Money is tight. People will not change. I can't bring peace where there needs to be peace. The devil's scheme is to lie to you. To accuse you. To pervert peace. To pull you away from the Word of God. To point your mind in other directions. To disunify. But we stand. Resist and stand. In the strength that God supplies. Let's pray. Father, I just ask that in this moment we wage war in hope. We wage war in hope. The hope is that you are enough, that you are sufficient. And so now, as we come to the Lord's table with just a time of reflection, I pray. That we as a people are in this together. I pray that we are not battling against one another. We are battling for one another. That we would be prayerful for all the saints. Father, I ask. I ask that you would help us. To make it a regular diet of walking. Walking by putting on this armor. Walking in the truth. Walking in righteousness. Walking in peace. Diving into your word, meditating on the helmet of salvation. Father, we pray that you would grant us faith. In this moment, in a spirit of prayer, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. So when you're ready, you can get both the bread and the cup, and you can go back to your seat, or you can come up front be people that will be happy to pray for you if you need prayer. But as we sing this song and as we reflect on this Lord's Supper, those of you who are Christ, those of you who love Jesus, imperfect as we are, confess your sin. Hold your arms up in your heart towards the Lord and be a receiver. Ask Him to do a work in your life and rehearse that He is for you and not against you. This Lord's Supper is a time to rehearse His goodness on your behalf. It's why we do it week in and week out. It's the putting on of the helmet of salvation, it's the reminding of the gospel of peace. It's putting around our waist the gospel of truth and righteousness. And so, when you are ready, take of the Lord's Supper and celebrate God's love for you. If you're not a follower of Jesus, This meal is not for you because it declares your allegiance to Christ, but right now you can call out to Him and ask Him to change you from the inside out. Father, please work in the lives of people in this moment, wherever they find themselves. Save and strengthen. So if you're not a believer in this room, call out to Jesus. Confess your sin. Ask Him to make you new and walk with Him among His people. Wherever you find yourself, let's take the Lord's Supper together.